Well, hello there. My name is Chris Angel, and my pronouns are they, them. Welcome to Allyship is a Verb, the LGBTQ podcast that explores and humanizes practicing allyship for the LGBTQ community and beyond. Hi there, it's Providenza Catalano, and my pronouns are they, them. Providenza is a delightful human who is an actor, writer, and organizer based in Los Angeles, California. I learned about their work because of my friend Jaffe, who will be on the podcast early next year, produces a drag show and Providenza hosts it. And my goodness, do they host it. When the pandemic hit, the show had to quickly pivot to online. And since the show is in Los Angeles, where I'm originally from, but I moved away a few years ago, I was finally able to watch it online from the comforts of Denver, Colorado. Although I don't watch many drag events or shows because it's just not always my thing, there's something super magnetic about their personality for me, and I started following them on Instagram. Some of what I appreciate about them the most is how freaking smart they are about various issues, how funny, and also there's something about their vulnerability. Providenza's work centers on the intersections of queerness, gender, fat bodies, chronic illness, and the search for emotional fullness. Please check out their episode page and support their work. And if you ever have the privilege of seeing them perform in person or online, please tip them well. As a quick reminder before the episode gets started, I'm taking a break for December, but season one will resume January 4th, 2022. Wow, I have to get used to saying that. And now, here's the conversation. You are trans, fat, and queer. And for those of you listening, I am absolutely fist-pumping into the air with each one, if it sounded like that at all. Can you share what those identities mean to you? Sure. I mean, I think that what my identities mean to me at this point in my life is exploration, questions, and unravelings something that I've realized as I've gotten older and also as like an adult on TikTok is that we, a lot of us go through a similar pattern when we're sort of discovering who we are. And especially if we have identities that interact with the world in a, you know, different cultural way. And I think what I've noticed is how we sort of go from being incredibly literal teenagers to hopefully more like embodied and, spiritual, if you will, like adults. And I think for me at this point, like I kind of have like the, like I've done the thesis on my, uh, on my identities. And now I'm at the point where I'm actually getting to like apply all the things that I've taken all this time to like figure out. And I think that also what they mean to me is like, not to be like cheesy, but like a journey that's like always going to shift and change. And like, I'm always going to have more opportunities to learn from myself and learn from people who exist at my intersections or don't exist at my intersections in the exact same way. And so, yeah, I feel like my identities are really a opportunity for exploration, questions, ideas. And that's kind of what I feel connected to nowadays. You work in Hollywood. Are there any movies or TV shows where you've seen yourself represented in any characters? 
Mm. I mean, no. <laughs> um, <sighs> like, I have seen parts of myself represented, right? Like, I love Shrill, and, you know, it's not a perfect TV show, but I think some of the themes are what I actually see myself in. Maybe then the, like, characters themselves completely. I mean, maybe an amalgam of characters, but I think just like the opportunity um, to sort of like see themes around like fatness and sexuality or something that I haven't seen represented. And so I feel seen in that. I think um, another option that like all fat people talk about is my Mad Fat Diary, which came out in like, I want to say the mid 2000, like mid 2010s, maybe be maybe earlier than that. I can't quite remember at this point. But I think that for me, like what I kind of never really see is the queer parts of myself and the trans parts of myself represented. And while I have like sort of a very like genderful expression and way through moving through the world, my sort of like day to day drag is kind of that of a pretty classic like fat butch like genderqueer person. And I think that that's a really, for Hollywood, it's a really alienating sort of um, kind of person to figure out how to display honestly. I think the closest that we've gotten to that recently is work in progress um, with Abby um, McEnany. I think that might be her last name. But I think that like in work in progress, that's probably like, you know, that's also like a different sort of generational experience than maybe I've had in relationship to my body and gender. But I think those little parts, little piece, I'll, I, not that I want to be like a love scraps, <laughs> but right now I do feel like I'm kind of working more with like scraps, you know, but I'm appreciative of the, of the things that do exist. Cause a lot of times the people who are behind them are people that I really like rock with like Lindy West and Samantha Irby and A.D. Bryant. And at least know that if they're going to be the ones talking about like some of the identities that I hold, they're going to do like a pretty honest job of it, which I'd, which I'll take that, you know? There was this post maybe on Tumblr somewhere, some social media platform. It was a long time ago. But this person was advocating for more casual representation of trans people, maybe putting on a binder for a date or something like that. Watching Sex Ed, of which I watched all of the third season pretty quickly, I saw a lot of people getting excited about a character named Cal, and I don't want to give anything away, but I do feel like they addressed it on the show. And it did also feel like they made Cal a teachable moment for people. So I guess when you were talking about not seeing yourself, especially in queer and trans characters and representation in general, what would be an ideal situation or character? What would you want to see you know, it's like it's like two things, right? I think to the point of like what you're saying of like it being casual is that like I think that there is a way to just in the way that like there are like for all people who occupy whatever things that they occupy, there's moments in which that's sort of like turned up or turned down in your day, right? Like there's times in which like you interact with that and there's times where like you maybe not that you don't, but it's not as like 
all the way turned on. And so I think like getting to have the opportunity to kind of see the moments in between, because more often than not, what we're seeing is like a lot of times violence that is per- that is perpetuated onto that intersection. And as somebody who is a writer and like I co-write with a friend of mine who is also a queer person, you know, one of our big things is like, we want there to be stories about queer and trans people that are like joyful and aren't, and, and not to say that we don't like interact with violence cause we do, but I think that, that isn't like the, the validity of our experience isn't contingent on the amount of violence we interact with. And that oftentimes is the ways in which we see characters that live at these intersections, you know, and that's a lot of times where we discover the emotional depth about them is like how they deal with these things or how they deal with the aftermath of them. Where like, for me, I would love to see like, what does not do queer characters, but queer community look like in action. You know, like, I think that there's a lot of like great storytelling that can exist in like tons of genres that sort of like live in that. So I think it's like about the, you know, that like seeing all the shades of moments in between realizing that there's times where it's sort of pumped up and other times it's like pumped down, getting to like also say more insular jokes about our, 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 you know, queerness or our transness and like not writing to the cis het gaze. Cause I think a lot of times that's why it defaults to the didactic or the educational, like you said. And it then sometimes feels, it's funny. It's like, I feel like they do that for people who don't occupy that identity. But then for the folks like us, where we're like, well, we're trans, like we're non-binary, like we're like, that is like, I didn't have quite a like astute specific observation about like my experience of transness, right? Like I, like, it's just like a over time thing that we learn, you know? And it's not like, we're like, when I learned I was gender non-binary trans, (laughs) I realized I could be all the things that I want to be. And it's like always like this sort of canned sounding line. And I think that it's like, that is written for cishet people. Like that is not written for us. So I would love to see the shades of like the ways that we make fun of ourselves, the ways that we um, exist with others. I think so much of being a queer person, especially, or any kind of person, I think when you're hanging out with people with like the who share identities with you is is that like we drag on each other we make fun of each other we mess around you know like and I think to me like that's where a lot more honesty lies is when we get to see like the actual community rather than sort of having like this plucked individual who's in this like space in which they do operate as sort of an object for learning instead of like a person, you know, and I, I, speaking of shrill, I was actually having a conversation with a friend the other day online. And, you know, I was saying that I think a lot of times when we have characters who are marginalized in some way, especially in a lot of new shows that are coming out and how it's sort of the mainstreaming sort of like knowledge around like feminism and anti-racism and stuff like that is that like a lot of times if like a marginalized character isn't a perfect represent like what you perceive as a perfect representation of that experience 
it's almost like a replication of like respectability politics, you know, and wanting to sort of, you're like, yeah, I'm so excited about this representation, but you're like, I want them to operate as this like perfect for in shrills as the example, like as a perfect fatty. And it's like, you do realize that kind of what you're asking is for this person to be like the most acceptable version of this, which is not revolutionary in any stretch of the imagination, (laughs) you know? So I think that what I want is to see the shades of our existence and the ways in which our relationship to our identities are oscillating and changing. I think that I want to see like more connection to community because I think that that's where a lot of lack of like honesty lies. And I think that yeah, like everything doesn't have to be an opportunity for learning. Like sometimes we're just being people. So I think things like you said like casually seeing a binder put on like someone like discussing what their gender is for the day or for the moment. And, you know, I think that finding the nuances of those experiences rather than kind of having them cater to people who's, who that's not like, I'd rather write stories for the people that they're about than the people who are quite literally voyeurs to the experience. So I think that a specific character, I don't exactly know, but I think with those things all in the cauldron that would produce a more interesting, complex, honest portrayal of any kind of identity. Yeah. And I think it's disappointing. I can't remember when this came out, but the movie around and about Stonewall, that was such a great opportunity to talk about our history, especially related to pride and the fight back against police brutality They completely whitewashed history by having a cisgender, white, gay man as the leading character. I refused to watch the movie, and I told everyone why I thought it was so disrespectful, and that doesn't even feel charged enough. The the rage, like, I feel the rage right now. I'm tapping into it again. Giving myself a moment to come back from the rage, gay bars were raided by police in the 60s because it was illegal to sell alcohol to gay people, and to dress in clothing of a different gender than what was on your legal documentation. The community fought back against police brutality. Black and brown trans women were in the front lines of that, and so to have a white, cisgender man, quote-unquote, throw the first brick in a movie that's meant to highlight our history, whitewashes and erases our history. This also wasn't the first fight back against police brutality in our history, but it is one of the most highlighted. So let's say their names. Leaders like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were doing the work. I'm wondering, have you seen other media like that that's been harmful to our community? I mean, I think that, you know, it's kind of that over and over again, right? And it it a lot of times is... Like I'm thinking about like films like The Danish Girl, you know, and opportunities where we could have cast like authentically. And there's really no reason to not cast authentically. What's interesting is that Eddie Redmayne said in late November of 2021, I made that film with the best intentions, but I think it was a mistake. And that, no, I wouldn't take it on now. If you'd like to learn more about why it's problematic for cisgender people to take on trans roles, the documentary Disclosure on Netflix does a great job of addressing it and covers more nuance. However, it can be hard to watch, 
So please do what you need to do to take care of yourself before and after. And so I think the thing is, is like, I would say that there's so much media that is like that. I would say that's the norm in a lot of ways. Like, and, and and not just for, you know, I think about how like Nina Simone movie that there was like a lot of conversations around like colorism and Stonewall where it's like, this is so deeply inaccurate, historically speaking, we're just like, this is so far away from any actual reality that happened. I would say that it's sort of like a, the norm that a lot of our media is problematic or is incorrect or is doing the thing that is acquiescing to patriarchy and whiteness and white supremacy. Because if that wasn't the case, we would see a diversity of like bodies and people and experiences on, on stage or on, you know, camera and TV shows and stuff. And so I feel like it it's the norm because that is that's the culture. It's just about the sellability of things, you know? And I mean, I actually worked in a studio for four years in the photo department as part of largely, more largely part of publicity. And I think that a lot of what I discovered in that environment is that the kind of conversations that we're having, even like community conversations on like social media or whatever, the people at the very top literally have no idea. They're so deeply removed from that. And a lot of times, even the people who are in like a PR department or in a publicity department, they might feel shreds of it, but they won't ever get the full picture because a lot of times also the people in that job are not us, (laughs) you know? So it's like every level of those institutions really doesn't have representative examples of people who are actually genuinely able to raise that concern in a meeting. And what I discovered in my time at a major studio was that like when they do see like, oh, you're kind of different, like you're part of the people, you know, diverse people are cool nowadays. What they then want to do is just extract you for ideas and perspectives and then not compensate you. And not give you that other job that's sort of giving you this ear to what people are talking about. And so I think the thing is, is it's like all the media is problematic because at every level there is people who don't actually know what is going on. And I think that we're we're sort of at a changing point sort of now in which like a lot of us had to make our scripts not as nuanced or intricate or layered because they needed to fit within that system. I feel like the the sea change is sort of happening now in which people can, and has maybe for the past, like maybe two or three years, is that people are getting to write things that are really like vibrant, revolutionary, specific. And those are the few things that sort of shine as new models of, of storytelling, you know? And I think hopefully that shift is going to happen more. But yeah, I mean, it's there's I always joke that like there's this onion headline that was from years ago that will always make me laugh, which is like feminist takes 30 minutes out of their day to watch media without critiquing it. <laughs> and <laughs> and I feel like that is like very true. <laughs> you know, like it is like kind of, you know, hard when you're trying to, you know, there is no perfect like piece of media, but I think that 
hopefully as we're sort of talking about the systems and institutions of how these stories get made, that that will offer more opportunities for us to have media that's complex and interesting and veers away from the problematic as norm. Yeah, because I know Friends was such a staple for so many people, and there's some folks who love that show still. I never watched it as it was airing, but a friend I love was obsessed with it, so I gave it a chance. I tried to watch it, like, I don't know, five to six years ago, and I I just couldn't do it. I had to rage quit. It didn't age well at all. Mm-hmm. I think it highlights our culture and where it was at at that time, but between being so white and fatphobic and transphobic and just everything, I had to tap out. Couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. Sometimes things do get ruined for me, you know? Once I've uh, seen the light, I can't unlearn the thing I've just learned. And so now I am more hungry for things that are smart, more nuanced. I can't just casually watch something. Well, like nailed it because that show makes me belly laugh. But there's a different palette I have now for, for media in particular. I'm wondering, if you had a dollar... For every time you were tokenized in your life so far, how much money do you think you would have by now? Oh, God. A, a lot. I mean, like, I... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Are we crying because we don't have that money? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a complicated question because, like, as someone who is you know, a performer, an actor, an artist in like DIY radical spaces and also has sort of a, you know, traditional grind as a actor. It's like I probably am at a higher ratio than maybe most people are, you know, because some things interact with my with my body and like my job in a way that isn't the case for most people unless they are like actors or dancers or, you know, whatever. Something that I think has been particularly interesting in my life is that I kind of am aware of the character I was like turned into in order to protect myself and to survive. And that did look like being like the, you know, happy go lucky, like fat, quirky, queer, best friend, you know? Right. And so I often find myself being seen in that way. And it's interesting as my expression, my like gender expression has sort of shifted. That's changed a little bit because I like have like a crew cut (laughs) and like just, I think that that like, there's something about that. Like I'm air quoting like masculine embodiment that work is incongruent to that. And I think that also, too, as people are learning about trans people, they're they're not also learning that the expression of transness, of non-binariness is incredibly expansive and lives very differently in every kind of body. And I think that for me, as someone who's sort of like 
limp-wristed, but looks the way that I look. There's a just so much incongruence going on to our sort of cultural narratives around transness and gender. Um, the fact that we don't see fat people as having gender like at all. So, and then also being like a fat person who's very self-possessed, that's like very confusing to people. But interestingly, at the same time, as I sort of get closer to like what I want to like look like or whatever, or I'm just like closer to myself and what I've always wanted, I find myself getting called in for more in different roles, which is so funny, you know, versus when I was trying to sort of like assimilate in some sort of way. But that was also the time that I was being tokenized the most too, you know, as sort of like, you know, the fat, happy-go-lucky or the like sad, fat, depressed, you know, girl, air quotes again, <laughs> you know? And so it's, that's such an interesting thing that I've been like thinking about and sort of like wanting to offer people, especially other people who are actors and in arts professions is like the closer you get to yourself, the less that stuff should happen. Or at least you have more of like the wherewithal or self-possessiveness to realize that you don't need to do that in order to be accepted, like you can very much be exactly who you want to be and like you'll get there and you'll find the people who want to do that. So I think for me, like I still interact with tokenization, especially around my body um, and as an actor, because people are like, what do we do with fat people? Especially I, <laughs> in like as a when I'll audition for commercials, it's like really weird to be like, I am being categorized as like a plus size woman, you know, and you're like, this is quite literally for the point of selling something. So yeah, I would be very rich, but I would be maybe less rich now, which is nice. I'll accept that <laughs> because yeah, in lieu of that, I've gotten, or in exchange, I've gotten a lot more of my own self to be represented and more opportunities for creativity and artistry. You have such smart videos of when I, I guess you go on a soapbox <laughs> talking about different things that you've experienced, for example. And one of the ones that stood out to me was when you talked about casting non-binary folks. Can you share more about that video? Unfortunately, given the fact that like kind of referencing what we were just talking about, about how there's sort of this like limited imagination around how we see people and how we see stories that even in moments like now where people are like being like, oh yeah, there's a non-binary character on that show or there's going to be a non-binary person or whatever. We're already seeing patterns emerge in which we are seeing how we in Hollywood imagine a non-binary person. And oftentimes that is like white, sort of like, masculine or androgynous in some sort of way um, and thin and able-bodied. And I think that, you know, that is already such a harmful, and not to say that those people don't exist, they certainly do, you know, but the fact that that's already emerging as like what a non-binary person is, is troublesome because then we're just creating imagery around non-binariness that 
people are going to want to assimilate into, you know, they're going to, they're going to say that, well, my expression of non-binariness is only acceptable if I fall into this. So there's a deep connection between expressions of transness or non-binariness in the body. So, right. So we already have like a massive amount of fat phobia that's coming in. We are also like not acknowledging that like non-binary people can be any kind of person in any kind of body. And what we're a lot of times seeing is, is that we only see non-binariness sort of cast onto oftentimes people who were assigned non-consensually female at birth, right? And so that is then creating substantial erasure of people who occupy different bodies because we're just already starting to perpetuate this narrative and people are already having a symbolism to assimilate into. So I think that that's part of it. And then what I think the other big part of, which is what inspired that video that you're talking about, is that you know, I'm starting to get to a point where I'm invited to auditions that are for non-binary people, that are for trans people. There's this desire, again, to limit, which is where they'll say, like, this is, I hate this word, but I'm going to say it for the sake of being um, brief, is like, they'll say like AFAB, you know, like they'll say that in the casting notice. AFAB, assigned to female at birth, and AMAB, assigned male at birth, have recently gotten growing criticism within the LGBTQ community. Part of it is that anatomy does not determine gender. There's also key nuance missing of someone's intersecting identities and lived experiences that are key to note in how we are raised or socialized. So, are we retiring those phrases? Sometimes, in the case of someone who is trans like me, it may be helpful language. But it may be better to say I was socialized as a girl or woman in my youth, even though that's not how I identify. That may give you a richer context. We'll see what happens with this. What's most important is that people have the language that they need to feel represented and have the opportunity to express themselves authentically. We'll be right back after this break. If you like nerding out on LGBTQ history and want to increase your chances of winning at trivia events, I have a bookmark set that's perfect for you. Honoring select events in the United States from 1924 through 2009, you'll learn beyond Stonewall. It's cleverly packaged in a slip with two different bookmarks meant to resemble the old-school library checkout cards. Just enough information is given so you can do your own research to learn more, which is highly encouraged. It also makes a great gift for community members and allies alike, especially if you include it in a book. Check it out at the Gender Sexuality Info Shop. Go to gsi.gay and click on the store link. Thank you for listening. And now back to the learning. And I'm just like, guys, if you're asking for a non-binary person, you can't say that. Because first of all, what does that have to do? Like, I'll use me as an example. Like, what does that have to do with my experience, right? Like, what, like, like, I've never been like, you know what I am? I am a female woman, lady, girl who turned into a non-binary, like, it's like, that's not what happened, you know? Like, there is nothing significant about that part of my life in the way that 
they're utilizing it because what they're really asking for is a person who they, I mean, I always make the joke of unconventional woman is like what they're really looking for, where a lot of times what they're writing is non-binary, but now they're, it's more like, are you a, like, I feel like they think it's either two things. It's like, you're either, um, an unconventional woman or like a femme man. And that's what is like people's conception of like what it is to be non-binary where it's like, that is not the case. So I think it's that there's just this tendency to sort of like limit it, create specific qualifications of how people need to like become non-binary or whatever. And it's just so alienating on a million different levels. If your desire is to either have a non-binary person where part of their story is about being non-binary or it's not, the most honest thing you can do is open this up to as many non-binary people as possible because you're you're going to find truth and honesty there. You're going to be surprised. You're going to be like, oh, that's like so interesting. And then also people are going to discover like, oh yeah, non-binary people look a lot of different ways, you know? So I think that there just needs to be a understanding that like non-binariness and transness are like limitless and can have a really big imagination. And we shouldn't feel so compelled to limit that imagination, especially because we're, we just started, you know, like we've just started. And I think that that's like, we got to like knock it in its tracks like now, you know, because it's our, it's like, it's so obvious how it's emerging, you know? And I just feel like that, you know, that hurts artists, that hurts trans people, that hurts non-binary people. And it it then just becomes like representation for the sake of representation, but not any, anything that's like honest and loving and like heart-centered. And that's what I like want to see when I see representations of people that are traversing the gender uh, universe, you know, with me. So I think it's just about, yeah, breaking that open and... And, and and not being like, oh, well, they do have a non-binary person. That's cool. Or they do have a trans person. But it's like, what is the story about? Like, was that casting notice fucked? Like, what's the story? Like, are they just being used as a sort of educational pawn? Totally. And in 2017, you did an interview with Pride.com. Mm-hmm. And it was called Dating When You're Queer and Fat is Like Navigating Through a Minefield. Mm-hmm. 2017 isn't that long ago. We're recording this in 2021, and I'm wondering, has that gotten any better, or has anything changed? Mm. Oh, my God. Well, I've gotten a better haircut since that video, um, <laughs> first of all, but I always, I'm like, oh, the terrible thing about being trans is that sometimes you can't see anything you've done <laughs> that was six months ago because you're going to get weird about it or dysphoric, um, but no. I mean, yes and no, right? Like, I mean, I... I think that on a personal level, I'm obviously having a, a, a deeper depth of knowledge around why desire and fat phobia and transness and queerness all interact with each other, right? So I think in that way, I've just sort of, you know, as I've continued sort of my unraveling around these ideas and themes, I have a little bit more kindness for myself because and for for people who are you know similarly interacting with 
uh, the world in that way. It's funny that you bring that up because in what I've sort of been discovering and sort of thinking about a lot lately is about how so much of my relationship to sexuality, and I'm saying this in like the broadest of terms, has been impacted by fat phobia and queer phobia and transphobia and butch phobia, you know? Something that I was maybe not thinking about in the same way that I'm thinking about it now is the ways in which my desire is considered perverse and disgusting. And I kind of like, it was this sort of light bulb moment that I feel like I've been having over the past couple of years and being like, the only times where I've seen sort of fat sexuality and it's always heterosexual is like in a couple of different sort of characters, right? Which is usually like the sort of over the top, over sexualized fat person. And the the joke is, isn't it so gross that they think that they can be that way? <laughs> and, and also just sort of the like, ugh, like that is literally disgusting. Or conversely, the sort of like desexualized, like we would never even know that they have a body. They're so removed from any physicalness of them, right? Because the they're just invisible in a lot of ways. What I've discovered is how much that messaging has impacted me more than I kind of ever thought and that it lives in me very much. And I've really been trying to unpack that both as like an individual within myself and like trying to challenge myself to sort of push against the the ways that I've been taught to not express myself, to limit myself, to edit myself. Also trying to be like a little bit freer in kind of like every way because I realize that sexuality is something that goes beyond just like dating and flirting and whatever. It's like our everyday life, right? Now, if I'm like, say I was in an instance where I'm like, I think this person's flirting with me. I believe it, or at least I try to believe it because the reason I don't believe it isn't because I don't think I'm like hot and cool and fun and smart. The reason I don't believe it is because fat phobia and transphobia and homophobia exist. <laughs> like, right, you know? And I believe it and I try and lean into it to the best of my ability. And if I, when I don't, which is often still, I do have a self-awareness of the wall building up inside of me. Something about that self-awareness is making me be like, okay, why is this wall coming up? Is it because I'm feeling, you know, am I shifting myself because of the messaging of the world that I live in? So much so that like, I can't take this moment as just like a human moment in time in which I'm just going to like have fun and connect with this person. I'm just trying to break down that wall more and more and try to live in my body more and more. And I think connecting to kind of what we were talking about before is that like, um, is about how like the closer I've gotten to myself, the closer that I have felt like sexy or hot or like desirable because I'm no longer sort of like giving into expectation, cultural expectation that is just like continuing to be the case for me, which is really great. The execution is something I'm still working on, <laughs> you know, of course. But I think the thing is, is, is that with fat folks, we're just really taught that. And this is why I say that I believe everybody has a stake in fat phobia is because I think that a lot of the fat phobia is about want and desire, not just sexually, you know, in every way. And I think that if we allowed ourselves sort of the freedom of that, 
we would release ourselves from sort of these like puritanical chains that we've all been sort of pushed to, to like limit ourselves, to imagine ourselves in small ways, to not believe that we're worthy of like love or sexuality or connection. On a cultural level, I think that, I don't want to say a mainstreaming, I think that that's maybe too strong of a word, but I do feel like there are a lot more people, especially fat folks that are talking about fat liberation in a big way. And so I think that hopefully as we're starting to have more genuine conversations about fat liberation versus like, you know, glitter, colorful body positivity, we'll hopefully be getting into these sorts of conversations, which that's why I use a lot of these platforms for like what's been so exciting about utilizing TikTok is like being like, we're not doing the 101 anymore. We're like really talking about like revolutionary mindsets and we're talking about how they interact with our day to day. Because I think a lot of times what people get messed up about, especially about talking about fat liberation is, is that like they always want to make it a individualized issue and not a systemic issue. And so I think that for me, a lot of what I like to talk about is the human experience of experiencing fat phobia and how that interacts with every part of my life. And some people might just be like, oh, it's just dating, like whatever, like fuck those people. And it's like, guys, like we have a, a whole set of rules in our head that has been dictated by white supremacy and by desirability politics. And like, it's not just fat phobia that's interacting with our desire. It's racism. It's, you know, it's queer phobia. It's ableism. It's, you know, colorism. It's like, it's all of these things. So it's like, like, this is part of the conversation. Like our humanity is part of the conversation because you're replicating systemic harm in this connection. And I am in the job of like protecting myself and surviving. So it actually is important for me to communicate how this lives in something that should be playful and fun, like dating and flirting and getting to know people and how it is limiting our ability to do that. You know, so has it changed? No. Has for me personally a little bit because I'm coming into this knowledge But I think on a cultural level, I think we have a lot of work to do. And I think the big part is the reframing of understanding fat phobia as a systemic harm and not as just like someone calling you fat or not like wanting to date you because you're fat because that's what people think it's about, you know? Yeah. And you're actually published in a book called Fat and Queer. It's an anthology of queer and trans bodies and lives. Your piece kicks off the book. I'm curious about the experience and if you wrote it specific to that project. So that piece that is in that book was actually part of a larger piece that I wrote. I'm a deadline queen. Like a lot of my writing comes out of the fact that I like find something to submit to and then I, or perform at, and then I write to the moment because (laughs) that's just how my mind works. I had seen that this book was coming out and I was like, okay, I want to submit to this. I wrote that 
not necessarily for the book, but using the deadline of the book to write it. The editors got back to me. I and they ended up being like, hey, we'd like to take your piece, but we would just like to take this portion of it as we feel like it could kind of work as this incantation to the book and sort of what the book's about. Like it inspired an idea around the book and the themes of the book. So like, that's actually really cool and really special when I sort of like detached my like artist ego moment of like, why wouldn't they just take the whole piece, you know? And, and now too, like I'm, I'm doing like a video piece around the portion that wasn't used. So it also ended up offering an opportunity to create another new piece of work because it, it wasn't completely put into the book. So, and I'm really glad I took it because I... I don't know. You know, it's it's rough like being a creative type in the world and and I don't think that there's anything wrong about having experiences in which your like commitment to the work that you're doing is validated, you know? And that has definitely been a part of it and I think like the love that I've just gotten from like a lot of friends and it, you know, has validated my commitment to like my work around these themes. And it also is like really exciting to be in a book with people who like I have learned from, you know, who I look up to, which is pretty, you know, when you're at it for a long time, you don't, you don't know if that's ever going to happen, you know? And so to have my name like listed with all these other, you know, educators and writers and artists um, first of all, it's validating because it's like, we're here, like we're talking about these ideas in this intersection, you know, and to be named along with them is really cool. So yeah, that's kind of how that came together. Is there a time you felt you could have been a better ally? And what do you do differently now? Something that is a part of the process of like learning how to be an active ally is taking the charge, like the hotness, out of the mistake. I think that a lot of times we're like, oh my God, like I can't believe I did that. Like I'm a terrible person or whatever. It really actually has like nothing to do with you as like a person in a, in some ways. Like when you get that like red in the face feeling, if you just like ground yourself for a second and kind of realize like we have been indoctrinated into a culture that has made us enforce systemic harm in both overt and covert ways. And it is not a personal failure that you are doing these things. It happens, you know, and as long as we are trying to be as present to that like moment and build relationships through that, it's like all good, <laughs> you know? And, and so I think that that's the thing is, is like probably moments that I wish that I would have done something better is that I centered myself basically instead of centering what happened. Like I centered my feelings and emotions and in a way that was not helpful to the situation, you know, like what I can probably confidently say I did is, is that like I made a moment about me that was not about me. Now what I realize is, is that like the reason that happens is because of like the hotness that comes out of sort of the initial moment of recognizing that you've messed up and that you can like get to the other side of that. And it isn't a reflection of you or your like personhood. Like there's definitely been instances where I've like centered myself and my emotional experience while trying to sort of like fix the moment, but not um, do it in a way that was really committed to the person who experienced the thing that I did. 
As I was researching more about you for the interview, I noticed you have been living with MS. One of my previous social work jobs was supporting people impacted by MS, and by the luck of the draw, I would get folks who were diagnosed with MS and also part of the LGBTQ plus community. There were a lot of interesting dynamics there. I could tell that they were nervous about sharing with me that they're also LGBTQ plus, and I started to see the duality of coming out for both, coming out as part of the LGBTQ plus community and coming out as living with a mess. I'm wondering if this resonates for you at all, what your experience has been, and if you feel like your intersecting identities that we've discussed so far have served as barriers to getting the care that you deserve and need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there there's definitely like an intersection between those things, for sure. I mean, I think that a journey that I'm definitely on is my unlearning of ableism, which was kind of shocked into me from my MS diagnosis. I can be pretty forthcoming in saying that I didn't think I knew ableism exists and I knew what would be instances of ableism, but I never really thought of like the personal experience of ableism until I was the one who was met with it, you know? And I think that what happens is that when you are disabled, the amount of suggestion of burden that disabled people create is a very pervasive force. And I think that this is two things. This is going to get dark for a second. Culturally, we're like kind of (laughs) pro-eugenics in a lot of ways. And that interacts with a lot of my ideas around like fatness and fat bodies too, is that, and wellness culture is, is that like, there are a lot of people who they so genuinely don't think of disabled people and don't care about disabled people and kind of do think like, we just, we need a world where everybody's like healthy and perfect. And that's the world that we should live in. And that is like actually something that is sort of in a lot of ways that we move through the world. Um, So I think that there's that sense of burden that happens. And then we have sort of a weird culture and relationship to how we talk about like the pain that we're experiencing. And I think that we can all feel this, whether we're disabled or not, is that like we've kind of been taught to sort of like perform pain so that people will care about us instead of us just being like, oh, you're having a rough day. Like, how can I support you? (laughs) You know, like we haven't been engineered to sort of go that care route, being forced into sort of a performance of pain as a way to validate what your experience is, is like incredibly fucked. And then that interacting with the fact that you are considered like a burden is very confusing. You're like, well, what direction can I move from with this? And as someone whose MS manifests as like a sort of daily interaction with like pain, but then also is not totally visible a lot of the time. Like I don't currently have like visible disabilities. So people are also unsure because they're like, you seem fine. And I'm like, my insides aren't, (laughs) you know, but, and so I think that it meets up with a lot of different things, right? Is that like, when you're trying to take care of yourself and go to the doctor, you're really just trying to get care from the person that is supposed to give you care. 
but also there's a culture around healthcare and there are different kinds of doctors and there's different kinds of ways that people think and judge and medicalized, you know, fat phobia, queer phobia, race, you know, all those things live there. So I think a lot of times you're trying to tell somebody these really intimate and vulnerable things, but you also have somewhat of a barrier up because a lot, like I totally empathize with like not coming out in like healthcare settings, you know, or not correcting people's pronouns or whatever, because I'm just like, you know, in this moment, this is not what I can center on. Like, and I hate that, but I'm just like, I just need to put my other, the other parts of me aside so I can have this experience. And that like, I don't need to have like the emotional fallout of being like, well, that sucked because like they kept asking me about like my boyfriend or if I had like a person at home to care for me or if, um, I like my brain, I'm trying to think of all the things like weird things that I've had said to me, you know, but just, yeah, like that centering of like super hetero care models and things like that. And I think that, um, it sucks in an environment in which like you want to really just like let yourself loose and be able to talk about how you're interacting with pain and how you're interacting with disability and having to eliminate parts of yourself is just never going to feel good because it does interact with how our health manifests. The stressors of moving through the world and whatever way you move through the world is part of your health care, you know, and it feels frustrating to not be able to sometimes speak to that because you're like, okay, in the rest of the world, I'm, you know, being seen as sort of a burden and challenging and, we don't have a lot of like social conditioning around like how to interact with people who are disabled or are offering that they're experiencing like difficulties. So that then in turn institutionally makes it difficult to ask for like accessibility, you know, accommodations in, you know, queer spaces. You know, a lot of times we are doing things that are DIY or we are doing things that are maybe like not funded and, that shouldn't be an excuse for not creating spaces in which like are that are accessible to other people. Right. So a lot of times there's barriers to actually being in space with other queer people because of those things. Right. Um, which is all different kinds of disabilities. Right. And I think that where the queer community has a leg up is, is that we do have a history of, revolutionary care models, right? And what it looks like for community to take care of each other. We we do have a little bit of that ability to shift to shift the ways in which we take care of each other, but I think that what it requires is a world that doesn't see disabled people as a burden, doesn't moralize health and think that there's like a way to fix you. And our bodies, like our physical bodies are not detached from like our experience of how we move through the world in every way. So yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like there's all of these things are layered. They all connect to each other. I, I don't think that there's ever been a genuine instance in my life in the past however many years while I've been navigating disability that doesn't interact with the other parts of myself, you know? What's one allyship tip you'd like for everyone listening to consider? You have to have a stake in what you're doing. Really identify who you are in the story of this experience. What I add on top of that is that I think there's this tendency that when you start 
discovering and learning about oppression is that you're like, I need to fix everything. I need to like change everything right now. You don't actually. What you need to do is you need to discover your stake in what it is to change the world and and get rid of this thing and find a really tangible way to work at it. Do things locally. Do things that are immediate to you, that are connected to your close community. Because that is where you will genuinely learn about connection, community, what people really need. You won't make them just this opportunity for education. You won't individualize the experience like I talked about and center yourself in an instance in which you are trying to like not perpetuate more harm, right? Realize that you have skill sets within you that are who you are as a person. Find the thing that you feel is the thing that you offer or the things that you offer. And that is your best way to do great work and connect with others. Of course, all of these fights are intertwined. Once you find out what is like, where is your stake? What is the thing that you feel hot in the heart about? And what kind of world can you make while participating in this in your community? you will feel so much more connected to like the world, to the, the the struggle and to the love that can exist and the connection that can exist when we commit to each other. So I feel like all those things sort of work together to create a actionable ally, which is what we want to be. I'm so grateful to my guests for their vulnerability in this episode and everything that we covered. Let's dive into the self-reflection questions, shall we? Number one, have you ever hid parts of yourself from health professionals because you feared stigma or mistreatment? Number two, do you know what's going on in your local community? Number three, Are you involved in your local community? Number four, do you judge people who park in handicapped spots but seem to walk just fine? Number five, do you judge people who stand up from their wheelchair and assume they must not need it? Number six, do you have a stake in your active allyship? Number seven, How do you react when you make a mistake? Do you center yourself? Number eight, do any of your words or actions contribute to fat phobia? Number nine, do you believe fat people are lazy and unmotivated? Visit allyshipisaverb.com for any resources and a full transcript of the episode. And remember, sometimes allyship means knowing your stake. 